Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. Uh, Today, I have Daniel Cohen. He's a PhD. He's a Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of 3D Biotherapeutics. And we're going to talk about his work there. So, Dan, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Yeah, tell me a bit about uh, 3D Bio. What's the premise of it? So 3D Bio, uh, we believe, is the first clinical stage bioprinting company ever. And that's to say that we've received approval from the FDA to initiate a clinical trial. Uh, so we're printing human tissue for the purposes of implanting into a person for therapeutic applications. So you know, ultimately, the point is to create complex living tissues to treat various conditions. So, okay, yeah, a lot of implants right now are non-living. Would you try to recreate what needs to be implanted, you know, so that the exact tissue is what being taken out by surgery and then replaced? Or, like, what situations would this apply? So, I mean, you know, I guess if you zoom out for a moment more broadly, the whole premise of, you know, tissue engineering is to say that there are some areas where uh, synthetic implants work very well, and there are some places where it does not. And we're focused... Uh, as a field of regenerative medicine, tissue engineering, and you know, 3D bio in particular, on the areas where synthetic implants do not work especially well. So, you know, for example, the first product is uh, a living ear for children born without ears. It's a condition called microtia. The current standard of care has a lot of challenges. We believe the ideal is to deliver a living ear in the shape of the patient's contralateral ear, their other ear. So that's a, it's a good example where the current standard of care has challenges, uh, and we believe that providing a living tissue for implantation uh, is the ideal solution. Well, what, what are some of the problems with synthetic transplants or implants? So broadly speaking, across, you know, let's say indications even beyond the ear, uh, synthetics have certain biocompatibility issues in a lot of cases. You know, in some ways, it's a question of how well tolerated is a biocompatible implant versus, uh, you know, is it truly ever completely biocompatible? So that's to say that you'll sometimes see problems with extrusion or infection. 
this again, I'm speaking broadly about the entire class of synthetic uh, implants. So one would be, again, biocompatibility. Another would be shape matching. You know, there are some places, you know, orthopedics, for example, where matching the patient's uh, particular geometry is especially important for function. And then, you know, obviously you get to certain kinds of, you know, let's say organs where, you know, you're really relying on the cells themselves for parenchyma or metabolic function. You know, it's to say that, you know, no synthetic is really going to recapitulate the body's function in certain places. Yeah, I've heard that uh, implants over time, the body will try to encapsulate it, you know, send in, uh, I guess, cells, uh, fibroblasts that will try to cover it over and again, uh, wall it off from the rest yeah. of the body. So uh, I mean, would that I think be that, that, with these implants or, or no? That is very much the type of thing that uh, natural tissues provide benefit for. So, you know, encapsulation right there is just the body trying, recognizing in some way that it is a material or a substance that is not natural. And therefore there's some process to respond to that. You know, again, in our case, that's not the entirety of why we believe growing tissues is important, but that is part of it. One simple example would be in the case of an ear, we believe that the tissue we're delivering will actually have a natural feel to it. So even just the mechanics of the tissue uh, versus certain alloplastic options. You know, the other case you have taking tissues from the patient, him or herself, taking tissues from cadavers. And, you know, that sort of an approach has a lot of other limitations, you know, donor site morbidity, which is to say you're damaging the part of the body you're harvesting this tissue from if it's a living patient, you know, mismatches in the biology, mismatches again, the mechanics or the shape. So in some ways, you know, the two big camps to treat these kinds of indications today would either be, you know, synthetic or living tissue of some sort. And, you know, it depends on which indication you're talking about, but there are clearly some places where neither of those approaches are ideal. Where are you getting the uh, the cells and how are you reconstituting the structure of the implant and, you know, everything sure. associated with it? I mean, so, you know, the, the, I'll go through the general premise and then, you know, in particular how we do it. You know, tissue engineering broadly is, say, you know, take cells, again, describe how we do it. Uh, you put it into the right environment and you're asking those cells to do what they do in our body to some extent. So, for example cartilage cells, chondrocytes. Uh, we harvest them from the patient, him or herself. So we're starting with what's called uh, an autologous process. We're using the patient's own cells. And we're currently doing work on an allogeneic process to be able to take other patient's cells. But we're taking the patient's own cells. Uh, the first challenge is getting enough of them. And this is one area where we've spent a lot of time as a company innovating to try to be able to take a small number of cells from a biopsy and create a, a very large number of cells while preserving their function. Uh, so we're taking these cells, we're putting it into a material. We had to manufacture our own collagen biolink to meet the FDA's requirements and meet a whole bunch of other requirements that are important for bioprinting for us. Uh, so we're taking the cells, we're putting it into this ink that we manufacture, and then we load it into a printer, which we also had to design and manufacture for you know similar kinds of reasons. We couldn't procure the kind of printer we needed for therapeutic grade. Uh, so then we're shaping this material that has cells and collagen. And then what you have in the end is a living construct in the shape of what you need, uh, for, you know, in this case, it's patient-specific geometry for the ear. Uh, and then what happens over time is that those cells deposit glycosamine glycan, collagen type, you know, of various sorts, and you ultimately have a tissue uh, that you would call cartilage. Well, how are you supposed to reconstitute the structure of a given implant? Like, you know, what would be some of the first implants that you're contemplating? Maybe bladder or simple structures or, you know, what's easier, what's harder? So, I mean, the first one is the ear. So, you know, we're taking a laser scan of the patient's other ear. 90% of these microtia patients have, you know, an ear that we can scan from. So we're taking that geometry. We're basing the design off of that. 
so the shape is prescribed by the patient's geometry. And then the printer is depositing this composition of chondrocytes and collagen into the shape that's prescribed. Uh, and then once it's implanted, the composition transforms from cells and collagen to cartilage, you know, by virtue of, you know, again, you know, in tissue engineering, you always have to say a tissue we would call cartilage because in the end of the day, once those cells deposit collagen type two, elastin in the case of the ear, glycosamine and glycan, that is the composition of cartilage. So you'll see, for example, the mechanical properties start off as stiffness of collagen, and then it rises to a stiffness that approaches you know, that of a native tissue, in this case, cartilage. What about the point of contact between native tissue and what you're implanting? How do you make sure that that acts as a proper scaffolding and then the cells, when they divide, they go in the right direction, they don't die off, they make the right you know, structures you need? So, I mean, the, the short answer there at a high level is that we're relying on a lot of the same processes that our body relies upon to direct cells to do the things that we want them to do. So you need to make sure that they have proper nutrition. There are various design parameters that you have to control in order to ensure that. Uh, but really the, the big answer to all of that is a lot of testing. So, you know, a lot of what the preclinical work really is, and, you know, frankly, if I zoom out for a moment and say, what has this field been trying to do for 25 years? You know, the concept of growing uh, body parts is not new. You know, the, the, you know, really a very famous example, the ear on the back of the mouse, the Vacanti ear mouse, it was about 25 years ago. The work that we've been focused on is the manufacturing innovations to be able to bring that kind of an approach to the clinic. So when you talk about how do we ensure this, you know, a, a particular property or process, ultimately, it's a lot of the same biology that our body relies upon. Uh, and then it's a lot of testing, a lot of controls, in-process controls, release controls. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now, back to the show. After the year, what, what would be next? Or like how far are you with the year, first of all? So we, as I mentioned, we have uh, permission from the FDA to begin enrolling for uh, phase one, two A. So we're in the clinic on our first program. We also have programs in ear, in the disc. And then in the future, we see you know, potential for things like rotator cuff or treatment for lumpectomy and eventually things like organs, although we're not there yet. What other body parts are you interested in working on? Are we, like. If you were to set up a Pareto of the easiest ones versus the difficult, most difficult geometries or structures to implant, what would that look like? So, you know, the way we think of it, there are layering of additional capabilities. So, you know, today we can make something like an ear and a nose uh, and, you know, treat a couple indications in the spine. We have a technology we call the overshell technology, which I could get into, but it really helps us take the biology of a native material like collagen and blend it with the mechanics of a synthetic approach in a way that doesn't inhibit tissue formation. So it's just to say we have a technology that allows us to begin to make stiffer constructs that are in more load-bearing parts of the body. So, you know, the next wave on this Pareto, as you called it, would be uh, greater load-bearing, something like a meniscus. 
which we have some preliminary data on. And then from there, overlaying nerves, innervation, overlaying vascularity, which we have approaches to address, uh, and then ultimately parenchyma, which is, say, the functional aspects of cells. And if you look at that Pareto, you eventually end up at organs, but each time you're laying on one additional capability. What about when you have different cell types that may be adjacent or intertwined, and again, you have complex geometries, how would that be resolved? So that's one of the beauties of bioprinting, which is to say that because you know bioprinting is an additive manufacturing process, we can control heterogeneous populations of cells, materials, or even something, imagine a growth factor. Uh, we can control that in very precise ways because it's a layer-by-layer -layer manufacturing process. So that would be very difficult to achieve with a traditional manufacturing process. But for us, uh, that's well within our capabilities. But again, is it like a, a 3D printing, rastering over a surface that you build up to make these geometries or, you know, how would it, how would it work? Basically, yes. You know, it is, you know, we have, again, we're uh, in our case, depositing this composition of ink and cells, ink being collagen. However, raster implies a very particular pattern through each layer. You know, one of the innovations was uh, an advanced approach to path planning. So these are very non-traditional materials with very complex material properties. So the way that we move through the part is, uh, let's say it's a little bit different than just rastering through each layer. Uh, we're solving for the complex material properties and the way we choose the path is to reflect those material properties. Do you, for any of the implants, would you have to put down, let's say, a base layer or initial scaffolding, then wait? then come back and add more? Or do you do this all at once? And again, do you try to completely form an add-on, let's say to an ear or reconstruction and then implant the whole part at once? Or do you try to, um, I guess, add layers right on top of existing tissue somehow, like in situ? Generally, it's all at once. So we're, you know, we're generally making the construct all at once and it's generally implanted all at once. There are a couple corner cases here where surgeons actually want a multi-stage approach, but by and large, it's an all-at-once kind of. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Okay, with the ears, what kind of ear damage are you addressing? When would this implant be used and how? So, you know, the primary indication is microtion. So it's a congenital condition where children are born without an external ear. So, you know, today there are two fundamental treatments, either rib carving or an alloplastic approach. So in rib carving, they're removing usually two or three ribs from a child. They're taking the cartilaginous portions of the rib. They're carving it, suturing these fragments together and putting this framework under the skin. And that is, you know, in some ways, the often considered to be the gold standard approach. It's been used for many decades at this point. There is another approach where you take an alloplastic implant under the skin. There are some, you know, of its own challenges related to that kind of approach. But, you know, it goes back to what we said at the beginning of the conversation. You're either taking tissue from the patient or you're taking a synthetic implant. Ear is a good example where both of the existing standards of care have particular challenges. So in our case, we're providing something uh, in some ways similar. It's a framework that goes under the skin. It's implanted in a very similar fashion to how the current standards are implanted. Uh, the difference is that our implant is a living implant made from the patient's own cells that recapitulate cartilage. So, you know, you ultimately are left with the living material uh, that's cartilaginous in nature, uh, shaped to what the patient needs and has mechanical properties that approach those of native tissue. Well, from what I understand, though, there's very little blood supply to cartilage. 
um, does it, I would think it requires some kind of blood supply in order to live. So how is that accomplished? It's accomplished the way it is in our body. So, you know, uh, chondrocytes, you know, primarily receive nutrition via diffusion, you know, interstitial fluids. So, you know, there is not typically a vascular network within cartilage, which is why if you cut into cartilage, it's typically white. There are some exceptions to that. But, you know, similarly, you know, our cartilage does not have a robust vascular network with it. It provides nutrition to the cells within our material the same way that our body provides nutrition to our chondrocytes. And I guess in terms of innervation, that's probably a long way off, right? Enticing, that's a whole field, I guess, enticing nerves to grow either into your construct or into parts of the body where they're not. Yeah, I mean, so this goes back to your question about Pareto, right? So one of the capabilities that is in our roadmap to layer on is innervation. Another capability is, you know, let's say more advanced forms of vascularity. You know, we have strategies for both of those. In fact, we have some data demonstrating that we can indeed induce ingrowth of vascular networks. So it's on our roadmap. It's certainly part of that Pareto that takes us from where we are today all the way through organs. Well, what would be your ultimate goal? Like, you know, would it blow your own mind that you're able to do it? What's what lays in the future that you would like to aspire to? So there, I think there, you know, there are a lot of things actually along the way, you know, each point in that Pareto is something that would be, you know, hugely important for me personally is the kidney. You know, my daughter was born with uh, a condition that me, you know, is certainly put kidney on my mind from the day she was born. Uh, and, you know, I, I think for me, that's one of the holy grails. Again, is this, uh, how far along are you with the ears, like in terms of seeing it in clinic and, uh, you know, having it done, um, what, what are the paths needed to, to finalize the whole process? So it's widely available. So we will be implanting imminently, right? So we've, you know, received that IND approval, which gives us permission to enter the clinic, you know, to initiate clinical trials. You know, the exact timing is, uh, let's just say it's imminent. So we will be implanting the first year. You know, we believe it's the first example of a, an implanted bioprinted tissue ever. Yeah, it's weird. It's, I'm picturing like the edge of the ear, you know, you're just, reforming and adding on to but like you said you can construct a whole year so some of it's implants but what would you call it if you're just adding on let's say and you're not really implanting if something's you know exterior you know again you're you're i don't know some of someone's ear the top was chopped off or something or it's malformed and you're gonna not implant but you're gonna kind of glue on or add on is that possible I mean, so again, that's not really where we're starting. We're starting with microtia, children born without ears. Uh, however, I think what you're describing would be an example of a partial implant or an augmentation. You know, today, if you were to address that, you'd have to take rib cartilage or you'd have to uh, use an alloplastic, a partial one. So if in some ways you could argue a very similar concept, it would be a partial, you know, an augmentation versus a whole implant. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, I guess an offshoot of what you're doing, maybe it would lead to plastic surgery. It might be if this, you know, if this cartilage just, I can't even say the word, but if this material that, you know, has cartilage in it, could it be used uh, for, again, plastic surgery to lift someone's cheek or butt? Or, you know, could this be a, a biocompatible implant that's used for a different purpose than what you guys are doing? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I mentioned earlier, one of our other programs is the nose. And, you know, we intend to start off in, you know, major reconstructive cases where, you know, again, it's a very similar story to the ear for major reconstruction. Uh, they have to resort again to rib carving or to alloplastics, which have a high rate of extrusion. So in reconstructive approach, uh, indications, the, the use case is very clear. In cosmetics, uh, it's also pretty clear because, you know, in the U.S., there's something on the order of 220,000 nasal procedures each year. 
And given the limitations of what we have today, uh, having a living cartilage material that's safe and effective for augmentation would be, you know, certainly it's something we're hearing a lot of interest in. And we think technologically we could do it to really make cosmetic applications efficient. That's where we would want to move to, you know, I was saying earlier, we're an autologous process. We're using the patient's own cells. We would really want to move towards an allogeneic approach where we're using more of an on-the-shelf product that's ready to go for cosmetic applications. And for the children that have this condition, do they just have holes in the side of their head, but no ear or how do they start out? And by adding the ear, is it just cosmetic or does it also serve to channel the sound so they can hear better? So uh, 90% of these patients uh, are born with a you know, functional inner ear. So it's conductive hearing loss. And there's a process, a procedure called atresia, which uh, they're creating an ear canal to restore hearing. You know, ex- restoring the external ear does relate to function in some ways, but we would say it's primarily a cosmetic reconstruction. Okay. Yeah, I was just wondering again, because of the shape of the ear, I know it's supposed to direct sound down the canal in a particular way. So I don't know if, again, in the design of ears, if any of those choices are important. I mean, you know, the external ear plays a role in amplification and localization of sound. You know, I think today the primary reason that patients have the reconstruction is for cosmetic purposes. But, you know, we certainly acknowledge that the external ear has a role in function. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, today I think it's an example of a procedure that has a certain established approach this is a great example where providing a living tissue as an alternative is, you know, we believe a superior approach. And, you know, the thing that has been preventing the field from getting here to this point, you know, very interdisciplinary. Uh, that's one big part of it. Lots of technologies that had to be advanced from an academic version to, and let's say, an industrialized version, and then bring it all together. You know, we found that we had a vertical integrate, but to make all the parts ourselves to be able to control each of these components and bring them into a medical product that's safe and effective. And there's no um, response from the body immune-wise? There's no rejection when you use these? You know, I think our data shows that, you know, it's certainly safe in that sense. And you know, a lot of that has to do with the fact, certainly we're starting with the patient's own cells. You know, we believe even when we move to other cells, there are strategies to minimize that risk. But, you know, what we're doing there is we're leveraging a lot of the know-how of the regenerative field more broadly to be able to control for things like that. Well, very good. Well, Dan, this is really cool what you're doing. Where can people find out more? And if, you know, if they know someone that has this problem with their ears, their children, et cetera, where can they go for more info? People can find out more about 3D Bio at 3dbiocorp.com. That's 3dbiocorp.com. And, uh, you know, we'd be happy to discuss further. Okay, excellent. Well, Dan, thank you for coming on. It's been a very interesting call. Thank you. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.